Welcome to the Wealth Matters Podcast, where investors come together to better understand how to build passive cash flow and create generational wealth without all the confusing mumbo jumbo. Here's your host and co-author of Amazon number one bestseller, Alpesh Pamar. Welcome to Wealth Matters Podcast. I am going to talk to Mr. Garrett Gunderson today. Garrett is the founder of Wealth Factory, an Inc. 500 company that has educated over 350,000 entrepreneurs on effective ways to grow cash flow, block financial, financial leaks, and rich economic independence without sacrificing, crimping, or becoming screws. He's the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of personal books, Killing the Sacred Cows, Overcoming the Financial Myths that are Destroying Your Prosperity as well. What would the Rockefellers do? How the wealthy get and stay that way and how you can too. So this is amazing. And he has two more, more books being released. Money Unmasked in October of 2023. And we are recording this in 2023. So we will talk about that book as well. And I Am Money, a kid's book in January of 2024. So welcome, Garrett, to the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Garrett, we start with this question with every guest. Tell us something interesting are funny about yourself and that is why i not spill the bins <laughs> yeah man i uh i started doing stand-up comedy in august of 2017 as a hobby but then filmed a comedy special in uh, april of 2021 called the american ream and actually was just working on a contract this morning for distribution of it and uh so it's going to be coming out in 2024 sometime so it's all around money and using a you know comedy to make it a lot more funny, which is some of it's about family and just you know experience, but there's plenty around money. Which I may not be the funniest comedian, but I figured I'd be the funniest comedian around the topic of money, right? Own that market. <laughs> of I mean, course. it might be a market of one. I don't know, you know. Right, right. No, this is great, man. You are living my life. I always wanted to be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> Certainly fun. Certainly fun. <laughs> What was your first investment and how did it work out for you? So my first investment, well, so I started a car detailing business when I was 15. Wow. And, and that worked out pretty well because I could play sports, but I could still have a business and made enough money to, to have a lot of discretionary income as a kid. And then won the young entrepreneur for the state of Utah when I was nice. And I won 5,000 bucks. And then my very first investment with that was not a good one. Um, I took that money, but I only took part of it. And I bought what was called the Variable Universal Life. So it was like sub accounts that were basically like mutual funds inside of a very expensive insurance plan that I was funding. <laughs> and three months in, I was in econometrics class and I did a, like an entire analysis, like a thesis on it. And I found out it wasn't going to work by running all these different, you know, I was running Monte, Monte Carlo simulations on it. Right. Second investment was really good. My second investment at 19 years old, I bought a townhome that I rented out to some of my college friends and I had my room. And so I was able to get a, what's called a champ loan, which covered the down payment. So I had no money down. I bought this property. 
for less than a hundred thousand dollars because it was in a little town called Cedar City, Utah, yeah, back in like the year 1997. And I was able to sell that for like 170 some thousand dollars, uh, nice you know, a few years out of college. So, I nice. after I graduated, that's without I, any down payment, yeah. Uh, and my sister rented it from me after I graduated, and then my girlfriend lived with my sister there who eventually became my wife and i got to swap and live in her parents basement my first year out of college rent free with the exchange and so yeah that was kind of a that was kind of in my cheaper days i tried to save every last uh, dollar that's crazy that's crazy but but i'm glad man you started at 15 so you were an entrepreneur by heart as yeah. soon as you know you started working that's amazing so when and how did you get the idea of writing the book killing sacred cows so i i would like to tell you it was a really noble idea initially initially i just want to be cool i want to be like i wrote a book i'm gonna get a lot of clients right. by a book and people are going to respect me the problem is it took me two years and i only wrote 72 pages because that's not a really exciting purpose and I was really nervous to write. Like, I was like, man, how's this going to go? Are, are people going to like it, my writing? I, I hadn't really written before. So after two years, I finally got together with my whole team. We had about 42 uh, people on the team and we were having this two day retreat. And we're like, what can we all get behind and be excited about doing? And the whole firm was like, what if we worked on a book together? And the, the team would support it with research and the team would you know, support it by reading through it and giving feedback. And uh, that's when it really kind of took off when it was like, I was tired of hearing people say, I wish I would have known this before. I wish I would have known this earlier. People right. used to say when I was in my 20s, I wish I would have known this 20 years ago. I wish I, even better. I wish I would have met you 20 years ago. I'm like, well, I was seven years old. Yes. Had any good <laughs> advice for you. So Killing Sacred Cows kind of became this way to help people. So I had, so I could stop hearing like, I wish I would have known this before. And I was like, what are those nine things that people really, if they would know early, would just have so much more wealth? Got it. So is it uh, similar to like, I'm pretty sure you have read those books as well, Profit First and The Pumpkin Plan? I know Michael pretty well. We've spoken at events together. I've never read either one of those books, <laughs> uh, but I've always agreed with the concept in general of Profit First. Yes. So, and I know it's a, it's a that's sold a ton of books. Killing Sacred Cows is more philosophical. I feel like The Pumpkin Plan is more about like a business and right. what to grow a business. And profit first is a more even like how to handle your business finances. Right. Selling sacred cows is personal finance. And it's really these nine myths that most people don't recognize that end up costing them a lot of wealth. And a lot of these are things people say all the time, like it takes money to make money or, um, you know, avoid debt like the plague or right. the finite pie. And I'm, and I'm showing them like, hey, this is a perspective that comes from scarcity and scarcity destroys wealth. So what happens when you find these subtle myths or these subtle lies, you can avoid them and have permission to succeed because you realize that the core of everything is the more of a value creator you are, the more money you'll make because dollars follow value. So it's really about treating yourself as your greatest asset, avoiding a lot of the missteps and mistakes and feeling empowered. So um, I love Michael and his content when I hear him speak. So uh, I would definitely recommend Profit First. And I know his ghostwriter is phenomenal because she helped me with two of my books. And so guaranteed, if you read one of his books, it's going to help you. But it is different than Killing Sacred Cows. Got it. Okay. No, that's great. So can you unmask money for us? Well, like money, really, the relationship we have to money is the relationship we have to ourselves. 
And when we have limited beliefs or scarcity or past experiences that we learn the wrong lessons, it starts to have us either hold too tightly to money or chase at the expense of our life. And so there's really two ways that people play. They play not to lose or they play to win, but both ways don't really let us enjoy life along the way. And when we treat money as our, like this is what is the ultimate thing, instead of a companion, when it's a solo artist, it could become pretty miserable because if we want more, there's always more to be had. There's always right. something. So I don't believe that money's evil. Like some people believe it's evil. I think it's simply a byproduct of value. And I think value is a great thing. It's when money becomes so important that it destroys other aspects of our life. So there's these four money personas that once we understand, we understand our subconscious belief systems and our paths that lead us to limitation or that lead us to wealth. And once that's understood, we can make better choices along the way. So money unmasked is really unmasking what those money personas are underneath and helping us to see and create a much bigger vision that's compelling. So we design a life we don't want to retire from. I think a lot of people trade time for money and they get exhausted in that world. But what happens when we create a game worth playing? What happens when we enjoy the work that we do? I know there's plenty of people out there that do the worst jobs that we all would hate. So retirement sounds like a pretty dang good idea because they're putting themselves into physical risk or they're they're just like, my dad was a coal miner. You wanna wow. retire from coal mining, right? My grandfathers were coal miners, but I'm an author. I am a comedian. I don't wanna retire from those things. I just want to do less of what I hate and more of what I love in a way that's consistent right. with money. And I think that too many people believe that's not possible. They think they don't have the education or they don't have the, the family or they don't have the luck or whatever it might be. And this book is about how we can start to profit from our ideas up front or plug financial leaks so we can keep more of what we make or understand our money personas so that we can really start to design a better life along the way. And so the, the real concept in there is how do we win before we play? How do we design a game worth winning so we've already won? And that is why I think it's a really unique book without content like that out there anywhere else. That's awesome. So what are these four different money personas? So one, and this is the one people like to be the least. And this is the one I spent most of my life in, at least until I was in my early 20s. I was a miser. A miser play, see like, nope. And everybody goes, oh, I'm a miser. Like it's an offensive word for some people. It, Misers play a game called preservation and they end up with money that they won't spend because they're addicted to holding on to right. what they got, right? So when I was a miser, it was all about what I could reduce and cut back and save and budget and scrimp and save and delay and defer, you know, like you kind of know the mantra. And so ultimately nobody shrinks their way to wealth, but the miser thinks they can just cut their expenses to the point where they're going to keep more money. And there's a book that really speaks to the miser. It's called The Millionaire Next Door. That yes. You could be a broke, miserable yes. mess if you never spend money. <laughs> and that's true, but you don't get to enjoy your money. That's the problem. Uh, yeah, I, I was thinking about that book. <laughs> yeah. So the second personality is also in a play not to lose. And it's called the conservative. I'm not talking politically conservative. I'm talking fiscally the conservative, which is they play the game called accumulation. And so they end up with funds that they can't spend because they're afraid they're never going to have enough. So a miser is more likely to put cash in coffee cans and put it in the cellar like my family, where a conservative is more likely to have a diversified portfolio. They're more likely to have a retirement plan or they're willing to research and put more money in retirement plans. They'll spend less time cutting expenses and more time allocating cash towards the future, okay? 
So that's kind of the distinction between the two. Now, the other two money personas are play to win personas. The one that I struggle with the most now is the striver. The striver plays a game called status and they think they could just work harder to make more money, but they inevitably burn out. They, they just they just go too hard, right? Then there's yeah. the high roller. The high roller plays the game called opportunity and they usually cut corners and take on too much risk, which leaves the short-lived riches. So they're, they're always into the next IPO or the next real estate syndication, but they don't know much about due diligence often or they're raising other people's funds. And so they might look flashy, but they might at the same time have rented the car, not own the car. Where the striver makes sure that they bought the car, even if they couldn't afford it, right? So that's kind of <laughs> the distinction between those two. Now, look, those are four negative or shadow personas, but there's a winning persona to each one of these as well. There's the flip side. The shadow persona comes when we're isolation, when we're in scarcity, and when we are just like blinders on of like, well, we're going to get there no matter what, and we think we got to do too much on our own. When we flip to the winning personas, it comes from a game of co-creation, delegation, collaboration. It comes from a place of abundance where we look at like where we create a vision big enough that we can support others and they can support us and it's less isolated. So the miser is winning persona is the mindful manager. The mindful manager is detail oriented. They're efficient. They're great at improving things. They're great for organizations that want to reduce waste and be more resourceful and even enhance ideas. So, you know, you might find really good tax strategists that are mindful managers. You might find really good, you know, uh, bookkeepers. You might find people that are just good at going in an organization and analyzing and saying, this is a better software to get what you want with less money. Or, or you know, like they're really good at that kind of a thing because they, they pay attention to those details. The conservatives flip side, their winning persona is the planner. The planner is a very stable, thoughtful and strategic person. They're great for organizations that want to you know, plan for contingencies and monitor the effectiveness and efficiency of any initiative. So again, they're a little bit more forward thinking. They might build a pro forma. They might look at where you can improve margins. They're, they're, they're definitely like, what is our plan moving forward and what kind of bandwidth do we have? Where the mindful manager is, where do we save on what we have existing? Now, on the flip side of the striver is the creator, which is an artist or an inventor or an entrepreneur. They kind of lead with innovation and ingenuity and they pave new ways to create value. Finally, the high rollers flip side, the high rollers flip side is the um, catalyst. The catalyst is a mover and shaker, a connector or a visionary. They kind of think and, and they think and play big and show us ways we can win together. When someone's a catalyst, they'll introduce you so well and they'll connect you to so many different opportunities. Oh, I think this will be a good person for you. Right. So so the winning persona is more about how do we help each other out? How do we serve more people? How do we solve bigger problems? How do we add more value? And rather be in isolation, it's in collaboration. Oh, this is great. So. So let's say and again, uh, you know, I may be somewhere, someone in between striver and high roller. Right. Um, so right. when you say flip side, those drivers have those creator, let's say, uh, capability as well. And and uh, once you identify the persona, are you able to correct that? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, it, it would just, it's definitely something that we're not always so abundant that we're always in one of the winning personas. We're always so scarce that we're always in the scarce persona. It, it could be circumstantial, but it depends on, are you playing the game worth winning? Are you designing a life that you enjoy? Are you building those relationships? And so we we could have moments like 
I remember when I was filming the comedy special, there was a bunch of bills. I mean, a lot of them, because I had all these Emmy winners on the crew that I didn't realize we hadn't paid. And I came back from vacation and the miser started to kick up where I was like, let's save energy. Let's turn off the light, like just irrational thinking for just a minute, because that was still kind of in me. But then I was like, that's not going to do anything. You know, I got to think about value and, and I've got to think about what I can do from here. So so we can fall into those habits because of past experiences or when we hit, you know, difficult times, you know, you'll see more people move into their shadow persona during recessions or depressions or economic slowdowns or shutdowns or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's not that we're all of any one of these personas. There's the persona that we lead with and there's the ones that we're strongest with. And then in circumstances, we might have a secondary one. So you don't have to stay stuck in any one of those losing games. You have to just ask, is this a game worth winning? Am I looking to collaborate? Where am I stuck? Am I asked for support? Sometimes people feel like asking for support is weakness and they think that collaboration is dangerous. And look, I get it. You could get involved with a, a business person that takes advantage of you, or you could have the wrong collaborator that, that slows the project down. That happens. That's part of life. I deal with that still, right? Like I still have people that don't get their, their deadlines done and that ends up costing a lot of time and energy and can be really frustrating. So, so that's, you know, that's a, it's all part of an imperfect progress. Done is better than perfect progress of right. perfection. We're learning along the way. You know, business is a series of imperfections. Entrepreneurship is something that is constantly evolving as we grow and we improve and we make adjustments. So you got to remember that and not judge yourself too harshly. If you fall into your shadow persona, it's a matter of having awareness and then adding value so you get out of it or talking to someone who can mentor you out of it so you don't stay stuck in that kind of dreary place. No, this is awesome. And I uh, I know you mentioned something about this unmasking money, money and mask book as well. And um, I was just thinking about it. How can someone profit from his or her ideas upfront without borrowing a dime? Yeah, well, I've done this multiple times and I'll give some other examples. I mean, we do, the world does this all the time. I mean, I I just went to a concert on Saturday. You know what? I paid for the tickets before I knew how good they were going to be. And they were just okay, you right. know, but I paid That's for the tickets true. ahead of time. Um, people have already bought all the tickets to the Super Bowl before it happened. So they've already profited up front. So the way you profit from your ideas up front, like when I wrote my first book, Killing Sacred Cows, it, it didn't come out till August of 2008. But I started to sell that book December of 2007. I said, if you buy the book now, I've got these audios, because back in the day, it was audios, they right. were physical CDs, I think, and, you know, stuff like that, I'm, that I could send you in advance. And so I pre-sold all these books before it came out, so that oh, when it came nice. out, we already had that momentum. So I was profiting from an idea up front. I also did that with my very first video course that we filmed in 2008. We filmed it, and we had to build a studio, we had to get an uh, uh, editor and a film guy. Right. We sold $150,000 worth of the course before we filmed the first video. Now we sold it at a discount. We said, look, for those people that wait until it comes out, right. it's twice as much. But if you're willing to be patient, give us feedback and even be a testimonial if you like the course, we'll give it to you at half the price right now. And so that was another way from profiting from an idea up front and then using that momentum. We see that with crowdsourcing all the time. You know, right, no. Indiegogo or they'll go to Kickstarter and they'll be like, oh, I love this product yeah. and they fund it. It's not borrowed money because they get the product instead of being a debtor, right? 
The other thing is even when we look at the Statue of Liberty, right? The Statue of Liberty was given by France to, to America, but when they sent it over, there was no platform for it. It was just laying on its yeah. side being pulled over. So they just went into the magazines and all that and said, hey, do you want to make a donation? We'll put your name on a brick. You'll be the first person to get a like ticket. Plaque, to see it. Yeah. And they were able to basically profit from it up front before it was even erected. So that's part of this whole kind of cycle of creation, profit from your ideas up front. And that's one of the chapters in the Money Unmasked book. And by the way, the Advanced Reader Group, it was the most popular chapter. It was nice. really popular because I talk about how to do it and some of the, the thought process behind it. Well, that's amazing. And uh, I was also going through your bio and um, something caught my attention. How can someone reclaim cash without budgeting? Well, there's four ways that I primarily have people do this, okay? So I'm gonna call it the four I's for people in America. If you're living outside of America, it would be a little bit different acronym or the, not all the same letter I, but it's stop tipping the government so don't overpay the IRS. <laughs> right. Don't overpay interest, right? Second <laughs> I, don't overpay interest. Third I, don't overpay on investment fees. There's a lot of hidden commissions and yes. hidden drag. And fourth, don't overpay on insurance. So what does this mean? How does this work? We find that we did a survey a decade ago, and then we even did another survey, you know, four years ago, where we're like, how many entrepreneurs that are in our database that do the survey are overpaying their taxes? And it turned out the first survey was like 93% of them were overpaying their taxes. Often wow. their accountants are busy and they're just helping them file. They're not necessarily getting on the phone and strategizing. And for some, if they're over a million revenue, they didn't have a tax attorney or corporate attorney, and that could bring a lot of advantage. And so some just don't have bookkeepers and they're not getting the data to people on a timely basis. So we found that the average was $11,430 they were overpaying per half wow. of the revenue. So you know, it's, it's a decent amount of money and that's not yes. one time. A lot of times it was every single year. On the interest side, there's really three R's to lower interest. You can renegotiate your interest rates. That's especially prevalent with credit cards. You could refinance. A lot of people could refinance when they have collateral like a mortgage or a car, Property, get yeah. a much better interest rate or reallocate. There's some people that are sitting there earning like two, 3% on their money and they've got 6% loans. If they pay off the loan with that low interest rate yeah. earnings. It's like, cause here's the deal. If you, if you're only earning three and you're paying six, that's a hundred percent markup, right? Yeah, that's a hundred percent making markup. that 6% by paying. Yeah, you're going to make, you're going to really improve. So, so that's the interest. The third one is on investments. There's everything from, you know, expense ratios and 12 B one fees. And if it's in retirement plans, there's admin fees and legal fees and all this. And what we find is, even less than 1% fee can make a huge difference. If you're earning 9.2% because of fees instead of 10%, over 30 years on hundred grand, it's $340,000 less that you get wow. by earning 9.2 versus 10. So those fees really matter. And then the fourth one is insurance. A lot of people have duplicate coverage or improper structure. I know people that have too low deductibles and if they raise their deductibles, they'll lower their premiums and they wouldn't make a claim on something that small. So go to the place where that threshold is where you'd make a claim or you can add like an umbrella policy to a car insurance and homeowners and then lower your limits on your car and home so the umbrella covers multiple properties instead of you know meaning multiple cars and a property rather than just one and you might be able to save money those are just a few examples but we find two thousand four hundred eighty four dollars per month of savings for an entrepreneur doing a half a million dollars 
by using those four eyes. That's money right there in their pocket, recovering cash. And so that is another chapter in the book, actually. Oh, that's awesome, man. I, I'm learning a lot already. So, <laughs> so let's Great. talk about some of the mistakes you have made with your investments or business. So mistakes that I've made, um, well, I got over leveraged real estate, which wasn't really what I would call my investor DNA. Investor DNA is your values, it's your competencies, and it's the things that drive you. So if you're like, hey, I wanna learn about this, I have capacity and I learn about this relatively fast and it's something I enjoy and value, that's your investor DNA. So I would say risk isn't in the investment, risk is in you, the investor. So mm. when people are like, is real estate risky? I'm like, I don't know, are you a good real estate investor or not? Or is entrepreneurship risky? Well, are you an entrepreneur or are you not? Is intellectual property risky? Like there's these investments where people make them because they hear of other people doing well, but they're not related to it the same way. And so real estate's that for me. Now, where I'm sitting now isn't my home, it's my cabin. And I know the area. I've researched this area for a long period of time. And I always wanted to own, a, I owned a cabin a couple of canyons over. And there's a lot of canyons that were available, but even then I had researched for a couple of years and I bought, I bought four plots of land and one small cabin, another cabin, like it's crazy. Just, this was like in 2005, I bought a cabin for $96,000, just a little A-frame. Wow. And, and I sold that one for 185. Right. So that was pretty good. I sold all the land. I held on that land until COVID. And so that land appreciated quite oh, a bit years wow. and sold, but that's because I know the area. Now I went and bought a bunch of real estate. I bought some in Tennessee, some in the, in the other areas of the Midwest. I bought some in Northern part of Utah that I didn't know a lot about. And so I did really well on that properties, on those properties from 2003, 2004, 2005. And then I got like, man, I'm killing it. I'm so smart. I wasn't smart. I was lucky. Like, I just yes. bought it at the right time. And then when 2008 came out and was like, by the way, you think you're smart? I'm going to kick you in the butt. And that's exactly what happened. So I ended up giving a lot of that wealth back because from 2008 and 2009, I'm now selling properties. Some of them I'm short selling or I'm selling it for less than I owe on it, even though I had had equity in it before. And that just came because of ignorance and greed. It wasn't something that I was really diving into and an expert in. I just said, oh, real estate's a good investment. But I wasn't even picking a lane. I had some commercial property. I had some properties that needed to be fixed up. I had some properties with duplexes and fourplexes and single family. And the reality is if I would have picked a lane and said, I'm going to get good at one of these things, right. that would have been a totally different thing than just spreading myself too thin, having over a hundred doors. And I'm now, I just spent two years of my life fixing all that mess, which was super frustrating and, and difficult. But the good news is as an author, I was able to help other people out by going through that mess right. and realizing the mistakes that I made. And so, yeah, so now the real estate I have is real estate that I could drive to, real estate that I know the area of, and I've done really well on that. When I got outside of my expertise and my investor DNA, and got overextended and over leveraged. That was one big mistake that then cost my business because for 10 years from 1998 to 2008, my business went up, hit Inc 500, just kept growing and growing. And then in 2008, my business went down because now I'm spending 50% of my time managing right. this real estate portfolio, not dealing with my business. So it took me two years to clean that up. And then in 2010, after I cleaned that real estate up, my business skyrocketed. 
It went up millions in, in, in revenue that next year over the previous years because I could now focus on what I knew. Nice. I think sometimes we get overextended because we think it's a good idea. We think we're doing the right thing, but we get outside of our expertise and that creates far too much risk. Oh, this is amazing. Thank you for sharing. So I'm going to put you on spot here because, of course, we got to see the funny side of Garrett now. Okay. <laughs> so let, let's get started with some jokes about money. <laughs> uh, jokes about money? Like, you know, the, the, the thing that is most crazy about money. Well, first off, you kept mentioning my book, Killing Sacred Cows. I just have to say, I appreciate you called it Killing Sacred Cows because the very first podcast I ever did after that book came out, the host for 90 minutes killed it, killing scared crows over and over. Oh, nice. Killing scared crows. And I, I would say, yeah, killing, I That's would, fine. killing sacred cows. And I was like, what's this book about? Like murdering birds? Like what is going on? And then, and then at the end he goes, hey, what do you think I should invest in? I go, oh, I got the perfect, I got three things. Well, one of these three things would probably work. A new pair of glasses, literacy, a new career. I mean, he because he just kept <laughs> over and over saying the wrong thing about my book. So that was probably the first joke I ever told. I was at this event and this guy introduced me as being hilarious. My buddy Keith and I was like, hilarious. I'm giving a financial talk. So I did that little like real story about killing sacred cows. And I got, you know, quite a few laughs. I was like, all right, this is this is pretty fun. And then I decided right after that to go do an open mic and the open mic when my hair's down. I get everybody to say I look like Jesus. So I had these whole jokes about, I look like Jesus, I just don't have his powers, you know? Right. He turned water into wine and I turned wine into pee and just this kind of <laughs> stuff, you know? So, and then, but yeah, like I have a whole bunch of jokes about Wall Street and taxes. Like we talked about taxes. I'm like, you know, the, the unfortunate part about taxes, most people are not properly saved, so they tip the government. That's like tipping a waiter who ate 37 and a half percent of your meal and peed in your soup. You know, so, I got it. I just have like, just a ton of, you know, a ton of uh, financial jokes about insurance and about like frugal versus cheap and retirement plans and, you know, just retirement in general. Like, I think the, the concept of retirement is kind of crazy because who wants to wait until they're 85 to finally right. have fun? You know, <laughs> exactly. I don't want to go guessing when I might break a hip. I mean, the only thing that happens when you're 85 is you wake up and some days you wish that wouldn't happen. Right. Your body hurts, your eyes are swollen shut. And, and you can't you remember. Go, yeah, and now you gotta go be president, you know? <laughs> that, that's a good one, man. <laughs> uh, this was great. Thank you so much, Garrett, for your time today. Are you ready for fire round? Let's do the fire round, man. Would you be changing business or investment strategy because of the current environment? I just sold the business in 2021 and finished my earnout this year. And so what I'm doing different is that business is about scaling and reaching more people. Right now I'm about having a deeper impact for the next year and basically being a little bit more one-on-one -on -one than I used to be. So I just finished an immersion where someone spent the whole day with me up here on, on Friday and I could really help them navigate. And then I'm, I'm just really focused on you know, getting my book in people's hands by doing a lot of speeches. So I didn't do a lot of speeches during you know, obviously COVID. I was doing a lot of comedy in comedy clubs for the last two years, but now I'm out speaking on my book and using entertainment to educate. So I want to reach more people using entertainment because billions want to be entertained. Only millions right. want to be educated. 
but I also want to have a little bit more one-on-one -on -one time than what I had over the last several years because I really enjoy building those deep relationships. No, this is great. Favorite nonfiction book other than yours or mine? Uh, <laughs> that, I like that, <laughs> other than yours or mine. I I really, really love the book, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Wow, yes. I love that book, yeah. It's a great book. Any tool or website you recommend or you cannot live without? That I can't live without. I mean, I just... I'm, I live by text message. Like I know it's simple, but like, I just like how much time the text messaging saves me. I can text, not worry about it. I'm just so glad I don't have to call everyone all the time and then right. play phone tag, you know? I mean, it's the most rudimentary tool, but also I love this little, I love this tool right here, the productivity planner, even mm -hmm. though it's physical paper, it's like I can organize my week and the things that I'm up to and make priorities for the day. So I really love that too. That's amazing. Any advice for investors right now? Um, I think that look at one of these three legs. Are you an intellectual property creator? Are you a business acquirer or your real estate investor? Add one of those legs into your life and look for opportunity where if you have liquidity, you can pounce when everybody else is like worried and running because it's when that's the best deals come about. And I think that, you know, we've got, I think the next six or seven years, half of the wealth is changing hands in the business world for small businesses. So there's going to be a lot of opportunity and there's just been a lot of chaos. So I would say though, more than anything, invest in yourself, find a skill set that you could develop. So you become a better investor. And if you focus on becoming a better investor, rather than chasing investments, you'll end up making more money in the long run. No, that's great. I agree. How do you give back? Well, I have a children's book coming out, as you mentioned, and I'm looking at taking the proceeds of that and investing it back into kids and, and education for kids and courses for kids and buying more books and putting them in more hands so that we can really help create financial literacy in a very fun way for kids. Um, I also, you know, I feel like raising good kids is a, is a good way to pay back and I'm really feeling good about my 15 and 18 year old and they're just kind souls and uh, taking them on events that I go to. I'm handing out books to people that I've written uh, for free to just try to increase that literacy as well. Um, yeah, and that's it. Well, this is awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Garrett. How can my listeners reach out to you? Well, moneyunmasked.com is where they can grab my book. And there might even be some really cool bonuses, including some comedy and including some uh, how to assess your money persona and then go deeper in which one it is. Um, they can go to GarrettGunderson.com. And at GarrettGunderson.com, I have a blog. It says musings. You can click on that. You can find out more about what I'm up to. Uh, that's probably the best ways to kind of stay in touch. Hey, this is amazing. Thank you, Garrett. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the Wealth Matters podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes so others can enjoy the show too. Have a great week and happy investing!